Hey, so we've been going through this book of Philippians, and uh, three weeks ago, our wonderful new president at Liberty University, Dr. Donnie Costin, gave us a, a sermon out of chapter one, which was a wonderful, and it reminded us of our identity in Christ, and then two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan did chapter two, and talked about the value of being in Christ, and then last week, Pastor Jonathan delivered for us a wonderful message out of chapter three in the book of Philippians, which is really all about knowing Christ and pressing forward to the mark, this high prize of the calling of Christ. And then today I've been assigned chapter four from the book of Philippians, and I'm really excited about it uh, because it's really truly one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. Now, if you have your, your little Bible journals here, you can join me right here on page 66. And uh, let's look at the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. Now, this is a wonderful letter, isn't it? It has such a different tone than the rest of Paul's letters. I mean, it's just full of joy. It's full of happiness. There's, there's just such a, a, a lighthearted spirit about this because this really is the book of joy. Paul, Paul talks about joy literally 16 times he mentions a, a form of that word in this book. And so it's really just a, a very fun book to read because it's so encouraging. And so the first chapter, he really talks about the joy of, of serving the Lord. And then the second chapter, he talks about the joy of, of sharing in the Lord. And then you, you get to this chapter, chapter four, and Paul talks about the joy of living in the Lord, no matter what happens. And we're going to dial in on a few verses of this chapter, but just to give you a little overview before we get there, let me just remind you where we're at. He's, he's been talking about this wonderful uh, ability we have as, as citizens in heaven to serve the Lord. And remember, there's some very famous verses in chapter three where Paul talks about pressing towards the mark and, and, you know, and, and, and our citizenship being in heaven from which we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our, our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And then you get to chapter four, and the first word he says is, therefore, in light of everything I've been telling you, he begins to close out his letter. He says, my beloved and belonged for brethren, my joy and my crown, there's that word again, joy, stand fast in the Lord, stand fast. And then he starts to talk to him a little bit about just some internal issues that were going on in the church of Philippi. It's a wonderful congregation. He loved them dearly, but they had some issues going on like every church. And in this particular situation, there's a couple of, of ladies, Euodia, Euodia and Syntyche is one way to pronounce it. Another word is Syntyche, uh, who apparently were, were fussing with one another. And let me just give you the Virginia vernacular for what he's saying here. Y'all get along? Come on. Really? Y'all just get along. And, and, and get with Clement and some other people and just learn how to get along with each other, for crying out loud. Don't you wish every church would just get along a little bit, you know? My dad went to a church one time, and there was only two people in the church. There were two little old women. That's the only two members of the whole church. And he said, I got there to preach, and they were in a fight. He said they were on the verge of a church split and they only had two members. 
It's horrible. (laughs) So Paul says, get along. And then he says in verse four, rejoice. Just rejoice in the Lord, always. And by the way, he says that in chapter three as well. And then he says, let your gentleness be known to all kinds of people. I want you to look here. In fact, if you got a a, a pen, you may want to take your pen and just underline some. He he uses some all-inclusive language a lot in this chapter. He says, rejoice. You might want to circle that word, rejoice. And he says, in the Lord, always. I underlined always. And then he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And then look at verse 6. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. This is some big language. He says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Circle that word thanksgiving. We're coming back to these. He says, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, circle that word peace. The peace of God, which surpasses all, underline all, understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And then he begins to tell them, listen, it's a mindset. Start thinking about this stuff. And by the way, a couple weeks ago, I gave you a little message out of these very verses called um, the God applause. And uh, you can go back a few, it's about six, seven weeks ago, I think, that I gave this. You can go back on our app and watch that message. We're going to dial in on some different verses because I just did it so recently. But um, read those verses. Paul gives us a list of what to think about, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are noble, things that are praiseworthy. He gives us eight things in which we're to meditate on and think about. And when we do those things and when we think about those things, we begin to experience the God of peace in our lives. And then in verse 10, he says, but I rejoice. There's that word again, circle rejoice. In the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, they wanted to help him, but they couldn't find him, first of all. It wasn't like they could search him on Google and find his location, right? This is, this is ancient days, and they finally found him, and they were able to give him a gift. And, and we're going to get further into these verses 10 through 13 in just a moment. But the rest of the chapter, verses 14 through 23, he's thanking them for this wonderful gift that they've given him. Not that he really needed it, but he's really grateful for it. And he begins to thank them that, 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 that they were the only ones who gave to him. Even, even when he was planning a church in Thessalonica, they still gave and helped him in his ministry. And he's so grateful for that. And he is believing that God will bless them for their gift. In verse 18, he says, Indeed, I have all, underline all, and abound, and I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. Epaphroditus, of course, was that servant from the church of Philippi that they sent over to him to give him this gift. Um, By the way, that was not a small little trip. It's not like he just walked across the county. No, it was an 800-mile trip. And this man brought this gift literally the distance from from Chicago to New York City. He walks this distance just to give them this gift. That's a long walk just to deliver a little present. And so in response, Paul writes this letter back to the Philippians and gives it to Epaphroditus to take it back to them so that he can thank them properly and so he's thanking them in these last few verses and he reminds them in verse 19 that my God shall supply all underline all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus and now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever and amen and then the last couple of verses he says now greet every saint in Christ Jesus the brethren who are with me greet you all 
underline all, the saints greet you. And especially, I love this, those who are of Caesar's household, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you again, all. He mentioned Caesar's household because you see, for 24 hours a day sitting in this prison, Paul is chained to a Roman guard. (laughs) They would go in six hour ships And of course, because they're chained to him, they got no choice. They're going to hear the gospel. I felt so, I feel a little sorry for these Roman centurions, honestly. I mean, you know, because they're just stuck. They don't have a choice. They are right. They got the window seat in that prison. They can't get out. And he's going to witness to them, and he's going to share the gospel with them. And for six hours straight, all day long, every day, four different guards a day, he's just sharing the gospel with them. And so when he says the, 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 the people from Caesar's household greet you, I promise you those are some of the guards that have been having to be chained next to Paul 24 hours a day. They didn't have a choice but to hear the gospel. Now, for those, of you, for those of them who came to know Christ, I'm sure it was a wonderful encouragement to hear him teach them and disciple them for hours on end during the week. But for those who were against this message and didn't want to hear it, that was a long day. <laughs> Could you just imagine, oh, I've got Paul duty again. Mm. What a wonderful... But you know, when I read this whole thing, I, I just, I get the picture of a guy who's just content. He's happy. He's full of joy. And to think that he's writing all this chained to a Roman guard and in prison is amazing to me. So as I was praying and thinking about what I need to talk to you about today, the Lord just kept bringing this back to my heart. And it bothered me because I got no business talking to y'all about this. I'm going to preach to you today about the subject of contentment. And you just need to know it's coming from one of the most discontent people on the planet. I struggle with this, have my whole life. I can find something wrong in everything. I'm sure you're not that way. It's just me. But I really struggle with this. So for the last seven, 10 days, I've been struggling with the fact that I'm going to give you a message on contentment, and I'm a discontent person. And so for 10 days, all I've thought about is being content. Now, the problem with this is that when you're going to talk about being content, guess what happens? You're going to get all kinds of stuff that comes in your life that makes you discontent because God's trying to teach. It's kind of like praying for patience, and then you have triplets, right? I mean, it's like... You know, it's just, that's what happens. And so for the last 10 days, I've been pretty miserable. And I'm honestly thrilled to finally get here on Sunday morning and just drag you all into this misery with me so that we can all leave miserable together. There was a wealthy businessman who was making his way to his yacht And he was horrified to see this poor little fisherman right there next to his yacht playing with a dog on the dock. And the the wealthy businessman approaches the fisherman and he says, hey, it's the middle of the day. Why aren't you out doing your job? Why aren't you out fishing? And the fisherman said, well, because I've already caught enough fish for the day. And the businessman said, well, then why don't you go out and catch some more fish? And the fisherman said, well, why would I do that? 
He said, well, so you can earn some more money. And if you earn more money, you can get a bigger boat, then you can go into the deeper waters and catch more fish. And then you'll be able to afford nylon nets where you can catch even more fish. And then if you catch enough fish and you make enough money, maybe you can get a series of boats and actually have a boat fleet, and maybe you'll be rich one day like me. And the fisherman said, well, then what would I do? And the businessman said, well, then you can maybe enjoy your life. To which the fisherman replied, well, what do you think I'm doing right now? In this letter of Philippians, you see a man who's content. He's in a horrible place. He's eating horrible food. It's cold in the winter. It's unbearably hot in the summer. He's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. There's no creature comforts, no electricity, no internet, no cell phones, no TikTok. And yet, you just get this sense in reading this that he's happy, he's joyful, he's content, even amidst such trying circumstances. Now, when you start thinking about this issue of contentment, you have to realize, again, that not all discontentment is bad. If you live a very unhealthy lifestyle and you're discontent with your health and you want to do some things to get better, that's a healthy discontent, right? But not all contentment is good. If you're 40 years old and you live in the basement of your mom and you play video games all day long, you might be content because you're getting to eat her meatloaf, but you're not any help to society or yourself or your family. So not all contentment is good either. The, con- the content Christian never lacks zeal for the gospel and serving the Lord. But the apathetic Christian has no zeal at all and no desire for serving the Lord. So there's a certain amount of contentment even in, here in the, in the room this morning that, that's, that's full of, of people who kind of worship on the sidelines and you're content to just sort of show up. And by the way, Satan loves that sort of contentment. But really, it's more apathy than contentment. So I don't want you to confuse apathy and contentment. Content people still have a desire for change and to to press forward, to to desire positive change in a life is is a good thing. Goals are good. We must progress forward in our lives. Even Paul says it in chapter three, to press forward towards the mark. So I'm not talking about having no desire for change or having no ambition whatsoever to do things well or better. So contentment is not this denial of dreams or goals or visions. Or, or visions. That, that's just needless surrender. No, what I'm talking today about is a holy contentment that only resides in your heart when you're steadily walking in Christ through the good and the bad and the highs and the lows. Warren Wiersbe defines it this way. Contentment is awareness of what's happening and the ability to remain at peace no matter the circumstance. <clears throat> I asked my friend Phil Waldrop this week as we were doing a conference, I said, hey, if you could define contentment in just one sentence real quick, what would you say? He said, well, I guess off the top of my head, I would define it this way. Contentment is when you've lost everything and you're still okay. I like that. Reminded me of Job. So for many of this, there's there's this discontentment that's fueled by an internal restlessness in our soul and in our spirit. That is, at its very heart, an actual spiritual problem. And this discontentment festers into a very negative mindset where we begin to believe the lies that 
other people tell us and that we tell ourselves. I'm not good enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm, I don't have enough. I'm not smart enough. I wish I was better, more popular, more wealthy, more influential. So at the very onset of this little talk, can I just ask you, are you a discontent person? Maybe not in every area of your life, but in some areas. You know, spiritual contentment doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen naturally. We don't naturally drift towards contentment. We actually naturally drift towards discontentment, don't we? So in, in, in the spirit of drifting, and because the church of Philippi was actually started next to a river, I'm just gonna use an analogy of a river for this entire message. So let's just imagine you're floating down this massive river of contentment, all right? Now, to discover the secret to contentment, we first have to realize that in every river there's, there's certain obstacles and rocks and trees and things that get in the way of the river's flow that we have to deal with. After figure out how to flow around or over, right? And so before we talk about what contentment is and how to obtain it, let's talk about these certain obstacles that come in the way of the rivers flowing. Certain rocks, if you will. How about, first of all, the rock of location? Uh, to which I would say contentment is not determined by where you are. Uh, contentment is not a geographical location. And yet so many times we think that, hey, if, if, man, if I could just get out of Lynchburg, get over to California, oh, been there, done that. Um, what if I could just get out of, you know, I just need to get in a bigger city where there's more opportunities, you know, man. And listen, maybe there is. I'm not saying you shouldn't go, and I'm not saying you should stay. I'm just saying, if you don't have contentment where you are, you're not gonna have contentment where you go. I have learned this firsthand. I've had to learn this lesson many times. Now, if you want a couple of biblical examples that are really contrasting in one another with what I'm talking about, let's go, first of all, to the, the greatest place on the planet ever, ever, ever. Genesis chapter two, the Garden of Eden. It's paradise. The temperature is perfect. They're naked. They don't even have to put on clothes. So it can't be too cold or too hot. They're having a great time. God's given them all these plants, all these animals. They're just hanging out with lions and tigers and bears. How cool is that? And God says, look, you can have it all. One rule, don't eat from that tree. And yet, because of temptation and their discontentment, it takes all of one page in your Bible for them to fall. So in paradise, we see discontentment. And then you look over at Acts chapter 16, where you see the founding of this very church and Paul and Silas have been thrown in prison. You gotta read the story if you haven't read it. But it, it, God used this very story to really build the church of Philippi, but in the midst of all this, that Paul and Silas have been beaten to within an inch of their life and they're in prison. And the Bible says at midnight, they're in prison and they're singing hymns. What? They're content. 
They're just happy to be there, praising the Lord. So in one area of scripture, you see that there's discontentment in paradise. And in another area of scripture, you see that there's total contentment in prison. Could it be because contentment is not based on where you are? Contentment is not a geographical location. It's deeper than that. Can I just ask you something? Are you content where you are? I mean, you can go someplace else. It might be a little warmer, a little nicer, have a beach, but all that wears off. And then you're going to look up one day and you're going to discover that you've got the same problems there that you had here. So the question is, where do you want your problems? Because if you're discontent here, you'll be discontent there. You know what else? There's another rock that we run into in this river, and it's the rock of stuff. Contentment is not determined by what you have. So contentment is not determined by where you are, but it's also not determined by what you have. Um, we all have this appetite for stuff, don't we? I mean, the, the retail industry in 2023 alone will equal $7.118 trillion. And advertisers are banking on your discontent. That's what advertising is about. Playing up to your discontent and making you convinced that if you just had this, you'd be more content. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men that ever lived, he said this. They, he, was, he was asked one time, they said, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Really? Yeah. But before we get too down on John D. Rockefeller, most of us would have the same answer, wouldn't we? Do you know that the average person believes if they just had 20% more, then they would be content? But what happens? We get the 20%, and what do we want? 20% more. I heard about a boss who had run across one of his employees, and they, they said something to the effect of, oh, if I just had $1,000, I could handle this. And so he thought, well, I'm going to do something kind of cool. I'm going to give him $1,000. So he gave him $1,000, walks outside the room and stands just outside the door. And instead of the employee saying, yes, I got $1,000, now I can accomplish they said, oh, I should have asked for two. Because that's what happens. It's just the nature of who we are. There's three types of people, the haves, the have-nots, and the haves who have not yet paid for what they have. <laughs> Those are the three types, right? Listen, folks, listen close. The gap between more and enough never closes. And so you look in Scripture and you see two more examples. One of, of somebody who has it all. Look at David. I mean, he, he's a king in a palace. He's the richest man in the nation, the most powerful man in the nation. He's got seven wives for crying out loud and a whole lot of concubines. And one day he just sleeps all day and gets up at evening time, walks out on his rooftop and sees this beautiful lady named Bathsheba and decides, I don't have enough, I need more. And then yet, on the flip side, Turn to Mark chapter 12 and you see this widow who has nothing, nothing. And yet in the, in the gift-giving time in the synagogue, she gives the widow's might, which is all she had, she gave in the offering. And oftentimes that's the way it is. Those who have the most give the least and still want more. 
And oftentimes those who have the least give the most and don't ask for anything more. Are you content with what you have? Maybe we should be like the writer of Proverbs, who, by the way, was King Solomon, who had everything. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted me, lest I be fool and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the God, of my God. See, true contentment doesn't depend on what we have. A bowl of soup and a place to lay her head was plenty for Mother Teresa, and yet conquering the whole world was not enough for Alexander the Great. If you're not content with what you have, what makes you think you will be content with what you don't have? I heard this great Asian proverb the other day, uh, Arabian proverb, it's so funny. I heard this from Greg Laurie. He says, there's an ancient Arabian proverb that says this, better a handful of dry dates and content therewith than to own the gate of peacocks and be kicked in the eye by a broody camel. I have no earthly idea what that means. But I'm pretty sure you could sum it up with Ecclesiastes 6.9, where Solomon says this, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Hmm. And we have everything, don't we? But you'll find the more that you acquire, the more stuff you get. Though it may bring you happiness for a moment, it will not provide you real contentment because contentment is not determined by what you have. Let's look at one more rock. How about the rock of comparison? Mm, This is a tough one. Contentment is not determined by what you do. Let's go back to scripture. There's another contrasting moment that's so vivid in scripture. You'll find it in Luke chapter 10, where there's these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus is coming to lunch at their house, and Martha is busy about making the meal and everything that she's doing, and Mary's just hanging out at the feet of Jesus, and it upsets Martha greatly. Now, before we get too upset with Martha, just remember, if it wasn't for Martha, there is no lunch, right? So we have to be thankful for the Martha. My wife is a Martha. I'm gonna tell you right now, we had our family over for my mom's birthday yesterday, and that little girl was up some 6 a.m. just cooking and cooking and cleaning and cleaning, and you know, she's barking orders to me, and I'm doing it, you know. You know it's, I'm thankful for Martha, because if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't have had a lunch. But you have this moment where Martha gets upset with Mary because she's comparing what Mary's doing to what she's doing, and it upsets her. She's discontent. And I I can't think of maybe a, a bigger rock than what we deal with as Americans than this rock, this rock of comparison. Comparison, folks, will rob you of your joy. It will steal you of any, content, any contentment in your heart, it just, it takes it away. Because what happens is, you see, when we start comparing ourselves to others, either it makes us feel superior or inferior. And neither one of those honors God. So we have to be careful that we don't get swept under this boulder of, of comparison, because it will trap us in the shallow waters of discontent. 
which is why I really don't like social media. Social media is so wonderful in so many ways, but you know they did a study not long ago with like a thousand college students, and they said, okay, after 30 minutes on TikTok or Facebook or social media of some sort, uh, what is your first emotion that you have? And you know what the most prevalent emotion after 30 minutes of being on social media is? Envy. Because you see, you're comparing your messed up backstage life to somebody's very carefully polished presentation of themselves. And you look at them and you go, man, I am a loser. And if you're not careful, you begin to believe this stuff about yourself. Comparison will kill your joy. Can I just tell you, why don't you start killing comparison in your life? Get rid of it. Stop comparing who you are and what you do to everybody else, especially the very carefully presented presented things on social media. Contentment is not determined by what you do. I got a lot more stuff on that, but we need to move on. So if contentment's not based on where you are or what you have or what we do, how do we truly live content? Well, let me give you a couple of our thoughts. First of all, look at the scriptures. What did Paul say? Not that I speak in regard of need, verse 11, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul is talking to the Philippian people and telling them thanks for their gift. And he's like, look, not that I really needed it because you see, I've learned how to be content. Contentment is a learned behavior. You know, learning begins in the mind, but the connotation of the word that he uses here, it's the word monthano, is that it's not just a book smart type of learning. It's an experiential type of learning. We need the right mindset in every situation in order to be content. And to get the right mindset means that you don't just read it somewhere, but know that you actually applied it through your everyday experiences. So it's not just what you think you are, it's what you think you are. Do you know that Paul talks about the condition and using the mind 15 times in the book of Philippians? He tells them over and over again, think on these things. Use your mind to do this. Use your mind to do this. He says, so I've learned, in other words, I've initiated into this mindset that whatever state I am, now what state is he talking about? Kentucky? Virginia? Hawaii? Some of y'all like, you know, I think if I was in Hawaii, I'd be more content. Well, maybe for a little while. I don't know, but it won't last. Or is he even talking about that kind of state? No, he's not. He's talking about a state of mind. He's talking about a state of his heart. He's talking about the state in which he found himself physically. Whatever circumstance it was, whatever would befall him, he learned to be content. And some of his situations were no fun at all. I mean, he's writing from prison for crying out loud, and yet he's content. Not because he's conquered the situation or that he can even do anything about it, but rather he's content because what he has learned is this discipline of living in those circumstances. Because he has the mind of Christ and he's determined in his heart that he can do all things through Christ, who strengthens them. So contentment is not a spiritual gift, but rather contentment is a learned behavior. 
And it is only learned by going through the rough waters of discontentment. It's fire by trial, if you will, and we will. So look what all Paul went through before he could say, I learned to be content. You know, verse 12, he says this, I, I, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And well, if anybody ever had the authority to talk about this, it was Paul, right? I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 11, he, he gives a list of the stuff that he's endured to learn this lesson. I mean, three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was stoned, and I'm not talking about with marijuana, I'm talking about real rocks. Three times he was shipwrecked. A, a night and a day he's been in the deep. In other words, he, he was alone floating in the waters of the ocean by himself, just waiting to be rescued. He's been in journeys often, in perils of waters, in, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. Five times he's been beaten with or, or, or whipped with the 39 stripes. Well, what's 39 times five? That's how many scars are on his back just from whips and chains. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger, in thirst, in fastings, in cold, in nakedness. And he says, besides all that, the, the torment on my own mind and psyche because I was worried about you, he says. So Paul lifts this, all this stuff that he's been through, and yet he says, because of that, I've learned how to be content. Now, I don't know about you, I think I would've learned how to be real bitter. But no, he's learned the beauty of being content in Christ. So if you wanna be content, then we've got to learn contentment in the circumstances that bring us discontent. Now, how do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because for the next hour and a half, we're gonna talk about the three things that bring you contentment. Three things that comes from three sources. You know, every river has a source of stuff that makes it a river, right? So I wanna just give you three little things that will be the source of your contentment if you will just practice these things and allow them to fill your life. The first thing is a wellspring of gratitude. Gratitude. Do you notice in this book how many times he's just thankful? Folks, I'm gonna tell you right now, if you learn how to be thankful, if you learn an attitude of gratitude, It'll change your life. I'll never forget sitting in that hospital bed with COVID, hardly able to breathe. And I read those verses in just this chapter, four, chapter four, verses six and seven. And all things with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God with thanksgiving. And I thought to myself, wow, I haven't, I haven't thanked God at all for being in the hospital with COVID. Not that I really wanted to, but the Lord was teaching me to be thankful not for the COVID, but in it. And that's what I'm talking about here. Because you see, if you have a wellspring of gratitude, it will cultivate a content heart. 
So just like contentment is a behavior that needs to be learned, gratitude is a discipline that needs to be cultivated. You see, because discontent is like weeds in your yard. Do any of you plant the weeds in your garden? No, they just show up. And so you have to weed them out, right? Do you know what gratitude is? Gratitude is the roundup that will kill the weeds of discontent in your life. Gratitude isn't just a spiritual benefit, but it's also a health benefit. Do you know that people with thankful hearts are healthier? You sleep better, your heart's better, your stress levels are lower. And did you know that it's been proven by scientists that the brain cannot respond to anxiety and gratitude at the same time? They come from the same part of the brain. So if you want better health, better sleep, more motivation, better heart, have an attitude of gratitude. It's a scientific fact. (laughs) So I'm gonna give you some homework this week. I want you to go home and write a list of things you're thankful for. You could start now. Just start thinking about stuff you're thankful for, people you're thankful for. And some of you think, well, where on earth would I start? I'll help you, let's start right here. You're breathing. You're in the room. You got here probably in a car, which puts you in the top 5% of the world in riches. There's so many things you can be thankful for. And you're like, well, I'm not, I don't have a nice car. But you have a car. See, it's all an attitude. It's an attitude. And gratitude does not happen with the fulfillment of what you want, but in the realization of what you already have. Alphonse Carr said it this way, some people are always grumbling because rows have thorns. Well, I'm just thankful that thorns have roses. See the difference? It's an attitude of gratitude. So that's one of the things that feeds is one of the sources of this contentment. Let me give you another one, the tributary of joy. All rivers are fed by tributaries, little riblets, little streams. And when you have gratitude and then you add joy to that, you know what it makes the river? It makes the river flow even better. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. Again, I tell you, rejoice. Joy is mentioned 16 times in this letter, like I I said before. But what is joy? Well, it's, in, in, in scripture, it's almost always used to signify a feeling of happiness that's based on spiritual realities and independent of what happens to you. Happiness is based off of what happens to you. Joy is eternal. It has nothing to do with your circumstance because it's deeper than that. Dr. Jeremiah puts it this way. Happiness is about what happens to you and to an extent is dependent on your circumstances, your behaviors, or your attitudes. But the joy of Christ is much, much bigger. The joy of Christ is about a relationship with a person. It's something you have access to, but it's also something you choose. We must choose joy. Let me give you one more tributary, one more source that feeds this river of contentment, and that's the tributary of peace. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything my prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And then later on in verse nine, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. 
So in verse seven, he says the peace of God. In the verse nine, he says the God of peace. Here's the truth, folks. If you don't have peace with God, it may be because you've never met the God of peace. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus we're talking about? Because if you really want a life of contentment, it starts with a relationship with the God of peace. Peace is established in your mind. And did you know that you can't worry and be at peace at the same time? Peace, real peace, is that inner calm that steadies the depths of your soul when even the foundations of everything you know and love are being bombarded with doubt and destruction. And we are watching a world that is full of destruction right now, aren't we? We are watching a world that is far from being at peace. And you may be sitting here this morning wondering, how can I be at peace when nothing else around me is? It's because the peace that passes all understanding isn't determined by any circumstance that you live in or anything that's happening around you. The best way I can illustrate this is just to give you a little story. From when I was in high school, we used to have a boat. It wasn't anything fancy. It's like a little 21-foot motor boat, but we used to love to go down to the Keys because we lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and so we'd get down there where it's nice and warm, and we'd get down there for spring break, and we were down there one spring, and, <clears throat> and, and, and the storm was brewing, and so we didn't take our boat out. We just went to lunch instead, and we're sitting there at lunch, and we were sitting in a restaurant that was right next door to the Coast Guard station, and suddenly we see all this activity, and suddenly these Coast Guard <clears throat> officials they jump in a boat and they go speeding out into the deep waters. Well, later on, we read the article about what had happened because we were curious what was going on. What had happened is there was a group out at sea. They were on an expedition where they were scuba diving. And only a few of the people on the boat were doing the scuba diving. The rest were just family and friends. And so this storm comes up and the boat's captain thinks to himself, boy, I need to get these wives and children back to shore. And yet the scuba divers are under the water. He's got no way to talk to them. But they have a flag sitting on top of the water so that you can find them. Well, so in a hasty decision, the captain decides, I'm going to take these people back to shore who are on the boat, leave the scuba divers under the water because they're pretty happy and I think they're going to be all right, and I'll call the Coast Guard to come get them. So he does goes back to shore with the family and friends of these scuba divers. Meanwhile, uh, the scuba divers surface, only to discover that they're by themselves. There's no boat. They have no idea where their families have gone. And they're floating there in these crazy waves and wind, and everything's howling above them. And they're, they, they, they don't know what's going on. They feel like they're going to die. And suddenly, here comes this Coast Guard ship to save them. The irony of this entire story is that while the scuba divers were under the water, they had no earthly idea that there was even a storm brewing. It wasn't until they came to the surface that they discovered the howling winds and the curling waves. And that's exactly what I mean when I talk about the peace of God that passes all understanding. As we go through our lives, and we watch the news, and we see all the craziness, and we see all the horrible things around us, 
When you're walking a life of joy, gratitude, and peace, it's as though you're like those scuba divers. You're deep in the heart, beneath the storm, in calm waters. You're underneath the howling winds, you're beneath the curling waves, and you're in this peaceful bliss. Not ignorant bliss, but just peaceful that nobody can even describe in human terms. Why? Because the storm is howling above you on the surface, but your life is being run and being helped and being founded in a peace that's so much deeper. Do you have that kind of peace today? Only Jesus can bring you that peace. Do you have contentment? Only Jesus can bring you contentment. Why don't you trust him today to do it? Would you bow your heads with me, please? For those of you here this morning and you're looking for peace and you've never experienced the peace of God, can I just tell you he's the only one who can bring you that peace and it starts by placing your hope and your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're gonna have pastors down here at the front. You don't have to know a bunch of scripture. You don't have to know anything fancy. You just come down this aisle and say simply these words, I'm looking for peace. I need to know Jesus. They'd love to introduce you to him. And that's where it all starts. But I feel like today there's many, many believers in this room and you suffer with this issue of discontent. You're not a content person. Can I tell you why? Because you don't have a life that's full of gratitude, joy, and peace. And maybe you just need to come to this altar and bow before him once again and ask him to restore the joy of your salvation. Ask him to flood your soul with a peace that passes all understanding. And then just simply begin to thank him for all that he is, all that he's done, and all that he's made. So here's how we're gonna close this service today. Let's go back to that song we just sang. And let's just throw up our hands and give him praise and ask the Lord this week to help us be more content believers. So content that everybody around us looks at us and goes, man, what's their deal? Whatever they have, I want it. Come on, let's stand together and sing that chorus, will you?
True contentment is only found when your life is flowing with so much gratitude, joy, and peace that your highest ambition is to walk in Christ daily, to know Christ more deeply, and to be entirely at His disposal in and through every aspect of your life. Until you get to the place where you realize that Christ is all you have, you'll never truly see that Christ is all you need. And it is then and only then, like Paul, that we discover, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Now to God and our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week, everybody. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition in your life of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. If you would like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we would love to chat with you about that. I would encourage you to email us at the address that is on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. And if you would like to help to contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love, to let them know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, that he rose again, and through Christ, we have hope.